this week's show is part one of a two-part series of interviews with Glenn Smith of Ethel's Lounge. In part one, you'll hear Glenn talk about his entry into the bar and nightclub business up to his Pop the Gator days. And stay tuned for part two coming next week. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Industry Podcast. You're recording live from Sugar Run. Um... My name is Kip Saunders, I'm your host, and uh, with me as always, Dan Soretta, the producer of this show. Hey, how are you? Good, man. How are you doing? It's so awesome as always, man. Yeah. I put on pants and combed my hair today, so <laughs> it was a big day. Uh, nice. At least you got hair. Yeah. Uh, good bonus. A couple uh, things to talk about before we get going with our t- with today's guest. Um, a couple ways you can support the show, most chiefly, is to listen to it, uh, download, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It's the industry podcast um, on Apple, Spotify, etc., etc. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing really helps us out. Um, ways you can help local business: um, civilian printing uh, is uh, combining with a few local artists, including Zach Hanna, who did the artwork for our podcast, um, where they're essentially doing screen silk screening on designs on T-shirts. If you buy the t-shirts, they, the money goes to support local business, so that's a great way to help out as well. Um, it's on KW, I love KW Awesome, I believe. Um, you can check that out. There's one for sure to run on there as well. Um, okay, that's that. Let's move on to the show. Today's guest uh, is going to be a good one. We got Glenn Smith here from owner of Ethel's Lounge. How you doing, Glenn? Very good, gentlemen. How are you? We're doing well, as well as can be. You keeping busy? Or? Uh... As busy as uh, always. <laughs> <laughs> so not at all. Okay, great. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to take a little trip through the history of Glenn Smith and Kitchener-Waterloo. Um, let's get, uh, we'll just dive right into it. So you have owned bars for several years now, several different ones. Right. Um, you got into this, and if I get any of this wrong, you can just tell me to shut the fuck up. But... Um, Feel free to jump in and interrupt me. The, you started mostly by promoting concerts, correct? Right. Well, blues concerts. Yeah. It was, it was the music that got me in in the end into the bar business. But it was, um, I back in 1984, I started doing a show. I did one show at the old Cress Hotel in Cambridge on a Sunday. It was Eddie Clearwater. And at the time, I realized that a lot of the acts in southern Ontario were playing in Southern Ontario. In those days, they would play a club, in this case in London, at the uh, the old hotel down there. they play for a week, take Sunday off, travel to Toronto, play the Brunswick House for a week, take Sunday off, go to Ottawa, play the Rainbow Room. They had a route. They then, uh, if they're American bands, they go down to Albany, Boston, New York, and then circle back through Syracuse, Rochester, Cleveland, back to Chicago. This was a, a route that uh, all Chicago blues guys have been doing since the 60s. Uh, Muddy Waters did it, and Howlin' Wolf, and Buddy Guy, Junior Wells, and and they did this thing because it, it was it hit all the college towns. It hit all the money towns, again, like Albany and Boston, and, and then when you see years later rock bands that were inspired by a lot of these artists, they, they all lived in these bands, in these towns, like Jay Giles and all that saw them in their hometown and they all have stories of seeing them. So anyways, I realized that if I had a place for them to stop, I could get in in on this routing that was 
already built for many, many years. And Kitchener's a pretty good location for that if you're talking about them going to Toronto, Ottawa, etc. Right? right. I mean, they're just driving up the 401. Right. Uh, London was an hour away that it wasn't interfering with any of their promotion where uh, people could, you know, decide to go to London or come here. If right. you lived in London, you just watch them there. Right. And then you'd wait the next week till they came to Kitchener. Uh, and on the other end, Toronto was an hour away that they had their own little um, world there that Kitchener wasn't going to be a, a bother with them. So uh, I did a show. It worked out well enough that uh, we made just a little bit of money. I realized that... Uh, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Just to backtrack a little bit here, though, when you first started, you were going down to shows in Buffalo and Detroit. Is that how you got uh, sort of... Yeah, I mean... Like, I, how did you get an end to booking these concerts? Um, back in the very, very early 70s, I, um, I got lucky that I, I won tickets to see B.B. King. He was playing in Stratford. And I went and saw B.B. King... I was 16, this was 1971, I hitchhiked out to Stratford, saw him, uh, by accident, uh, was able to go backstage because I met a lady that was the promoter, took me back and introduced me to him and shook my hand and gave me a Coke and gave me his guitar pick and <laughs> met all the guys in his band and I was enthralled that I was 16 uh, and met B.B. King and he was if you're going to get into any form of music, it'd be like getting into jazz and meeting the nicest jazz performer ever, or getting right. into, you know, and it was, I was really lucky because B.B. King ended up being very much the ambassador of that music and, you know, somewhat the godfather of blues music and everyone looked up to. Um, he was also, had just come out with a big hit, The Thrill Is Gone. He did that live at Cook County Prison. Uh, live at the Regal. Uh, the music was just happening right at that moment when I got lucky enough to meet him. So you feel like I wasn't going into oldies music or something. Mm. It was actually <laughs> happening right, right at that time. Um, and then uh, uh, just a month later, the University of Waterloo, they did a blues show up there. It was a big package deal of Muddy Waters and Buddy Guy and Junior Wells, John Lee Hooker. Mississippi Fred McDowell cost like a dollar to get in. Jesus. And they saw all these guys. And then like two months later, they did another show at the University of Waterloo with Freddie King and Big Mama Thornton and the Howlin' Wolf. And I saw, I saw all these people in a very short period of time. And I was just head over heels with the music. Again, they were all recording at somewhat the peaks of their careers. The stuff was coming out. It was really fun to be into. I can imagine. Crazy time. Uh, and it was like um, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee play the university all the time. And um, you could go to Toronto, and on Young Street there was a bar called the Colonial Tavern where blues was all the time. It was so big that upstairs in the main room they would have someone play. Again, part of this circuit we talked about, Muddy Waters would play there for a whole week. Downstairs would be somewhat of the B artists from Chicago. Uh, like, you know, Eddie Shaw or Willie Dixon or some of these guys that play for a whole week actually downstairs on a whole other bar in the same building. So it was blues overload. Mm. Blues, sorry. The Alma Combo would be having guys like Albert Collins and Roy Buchanan and Coco Taylor and, and different bars in Toronto. So it was everywhere, and I got hooked on it. And then I met a lot of guys in town here that knew a lot about R&B and soul and funk and jazz and I was in a hotbed of information 
of guys that had radio shows and are writers and knew a lot of stuff. So I, I was really lucky. Right. So then, okay, so we back, I sort of interrupted you. You were um, promoting your first show was... What year would that have been? Uh, the first show. So I studied the music and I studied the business for the next 13 years. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and when I got into the business then in the very early 80s, I understood the music, the I understood the, the business end of it, I understood the, um, the promotion end of it more. I just had asked a million questions of a million people at this point and figured out the way to do it the way not to do it, uh, and I just learned, 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 and taught myself a whole bunch of stuff before I actually went out and was brave enough to go out and do my first show. Right. And so you're doing your first show. you got to find a venue. Right. Uh, what was that? The venue was, uh, again, the Cress Hotel down in Cambridge. It's, it's gone now. It's right at the bottom of the hill uh, across from where the Naughty Pine used to be, an old place. And I learned that the only way to make it successful is you had to have your own liquor license. You had to control the room. Instead of me uh, going into business with a guy that had the license, and then he gave me a little bit of the money and you right. know, the things you learn. And so I said, the only way I could do this is I have to control the situation is getting my own liquor license and everything else. So I had to then... Uh, uh, figure out the next step, which was a year later, I started the Kitchener Legion on Ontario Street, where I was able to get my own liquor license. They would rent me the room, and it, and you know I was able to, as a business, make it work because um, our dollar was terrible at the time. It was like sixty nine cents on a U.S. dollar, and mm. uh, that's how it all started. Well, you got to really. pay these guys in American dollars, right? right? So, Even yeah. if they're paying in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's all cash each time too. I'm assuming. Oh yeah. So that's where it really started for me is in 1985, and again, it was a very good year. Blues, if anything, it's made somewhat of kind of a rebound from the 70s that it's exactly when uh, Steve Ray Vaughan was coming out. It's when Albert Collins was really making it big. Robert Cray. Robert Cray, the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Mm -hmm. Bonnie Raitt had a big album out right at that point. And it, you know, even Canadian artists like Colin James had just started and it was just doing a little bit of a resurgence right at, right at that point. So my timing was somewhat lucky and uh, it worked out really well. Well, I mean, 13 years of studying, it's not all luck, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you attempt to do, you know, my expression is, as corny as it sounds, if you do enough right, you know, enough things right, you'll never go wrong. Right. So <laughs> if you do, I just tried to figure out where the weak parts of the plan were and then work on those until they became a strength. Mm. And then when I figured it was time to go, it was, you know... That's, in it's interesting to talk about, though, because I think a lot of people, um, and like even today when people are opening, and we're going to get into transition into your opening bars, but they just think, oh, I like to hang out in bars, I probably know how to open a bar, and off they go, right? Whereas right. opposed to like being patient enough to wait till you actually feel like you're ready. Right. Like, and I mean, you know I, enough of everything, all different parts of the business. Yeah, I mean, I see people doing that all the time where they'll go to, uh, let's say, chef school in Stratford or something, and, and they'll be there a couple of years, get their papers. They're very talented in running a kitchen. Mm. And the first thing they want to do when they get out is say, I'm ready. I want my own restaurant. Yeah. They don't know 
the timing, if the economics of the, you know, just the time is right, mm. where are they going to get the money, where they're going to get a location, where, what kind of a menu they're going to do. They, they just go, that's it, I want a restaurant, and I want to do it right now. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and, and I, I agree with that. And also the, the other, the other side of that is those people who have no experience in the industry at all and just like, oh, but I like to drink in bars. I like right. to go out and eat. I, I can do this. I know right. how to do this. And then they just jump into it. Where it's And it's sometimes hard. I know when I was thinking about trying to open my own spot, like, I, you always think you're ready, right? Because you always think you know more than the person you're working for. Right. right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Hold it. Yeah. They find out later you're probably fucking wrong about that. But, the, but like, it, it, it's not always easy to be patient, right? To, like, no, you just... Um you think then if you're not patient, or if you are patient, then you're thinking, well, am I just talking myself out of it? Or am I missing my chance? Right. Yeah. Is the opportunity go, is to go by me, and then later I'll say I should have done it. Right. And so you don't want self-doubt to be part of your So it's kind of a, so. would you say it's sort of a fine line of like figuring out when you're ready and not letting something pass you by. Like it's not, not always easy to find that exact moment. Right. I mean, in my case, I always had, I've always had backup plans. Right. I always had that. I started booking bands where I was going to do maybe four or five a year. I still had a day job. I mm. didn't sell everything, quit everything, right. sink it all into opening a promotion company, hoping I'd make enough that I could take a wage order, all that. I was still doing it out of the love of the music. Mm -hmm. This was, uh, I had to find a way that I could book a hall, see all the cool bands that I really wanted to see, uh, make it pay for itself, uh, also get drunk and have the greatest night of my life. Yeah. Because you know? <laughs> yeah. you're still a fan at the end of yeah, the day. Yeah, right? I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. So I, at some points of the night, once the band is there and the room is full of people and there's a lineup at the bar, I'm no longer a promoter. You're going to go to fanboy. Right now, <laughs> yeah. I'm the guy at the front of the dance floor listening yeah. to the band jumping around going, this is the best thing. I, right. You know, this is the greatest night of my life. So, right. Uh, but if you look at most bar owners that are serious owners, most of them don't even drink. So right. those are the smart ones. What a waste! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like I can learn from them. I think. Well, yeah, you can learn that. You know, I had a guy. Actually, my partner doesn't drink, so I guess that maybe if you have one doesn't drink, one does. Does that work? Yeah. yeah let's go well, with that. Fifty percent of you yeah. drink, then. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's how I started out. It was not as to get into the bar business ring. It was just how to make the promotion blues music pay for itself and you wanted mostly that just because you wanted these shows in your hometown right right like, more more so than even thinking how am i going to make a shit ton of money off this you already had your day job right but, like if you made money off of it great right but you just wanted this music in town yeah that's what i want if i broke even i was ecstatic yeah and i had my day job monday to friday that i was going to be fine at and I uh, didn't have to worry. Well, I remember when I tried to uh, promote it for my first show in town and I asked you for advice about it and you told me the exact same fucking thing. Like, don't expect to make any money off of it. Just pick a band that you want to be a fan of and have play in town and then if you break even, be happy with that. Right. That's a, it's pretty much, I think I lost like 
a hundred dollars or something on the right. show, and it was like, and but this this amazing band was playing in town, and right. they were from Michigan, and it was awesome, right? Yeah, right. So. But you can always justify it by saying instead of the hundred dollars I would have spent getting in a car, driving yeah. somewhere, staying in a motel, buying right. food and drink out of town, blah blah exactly. blah. Exactly, it's a bargain. I did it in town. I had a great time. I'll always look back and say I brought that band to my town, mm. and you know. So, so what was the first act? I would say a guy out of Texas, uh, uh, Clarence Gatemouth Brown, who had been around forever. And I booked him thinking, I better book this guy, you know, because he won't be around forever. He just died a couple of years ago. (laughs) 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 He lived lived another 30 years after that. (laughs) But I had... um, I had made an appointment. I had no money to promote. I've never spent any money on promotion. So my promotion, and this before uh, social media, mm. is how to get the local paper, the kitchen, a record, or write a review before the show. Before the show, it's promotion. After the show, it's just uh, yes. gratis, something to read and make yourself exactly. feel better. It doesn't help. If you it? get a review. Yeah. Before the show, it's promotion. Right. So I had to convince the local guy uh, who was the arts director or the entertainment director to come out to the show and write about it and blah 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 which was a whole bunch of other stories how I conned him into doing it but uh, uh, he came out uh, or he wrote an article in the Kitchener Record about a, uh, a week before the show and I had printed up 200 tickets and I had taken them down to a record store it's called Record World it used to be across from Sam the Record Man and like any promoter, I dropped them off. And I went in uh, the night before the show, and I said, you know, did you sell any tickets, you know, hoping? He goes, oh, yeah, they're all sold out. And I thought he was kidding me. Right. And he had sold at $6 a ticket, uh, 200 tickets. No, huh? And he handed me all the money. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought he was lying to me. Right. And, <laughs> and so, so at that point, have you made what you needed to make for the... Oh, I don't know. I, the, the hall was cheap. I mean, yeah. we're talking 85. The hall was probably a couple hundred dollars. And I think they charged me an extra 30 if they cleaned it up, if I didn't even have to clean it up. At oh, right. <laughs> That's an easy 30. 30. <laughs> um, they were so good to me. They let me get my own liquor license. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the guys that was a member at the Legion also worked at the liquor store, and he wanted the Legion to get busy for rental. So he'd always uh, made my life real easy with me getting liquor licenses and everything. Right. So I had a little bit of a thing going yeah. on here. Uh, I knew the immigration guy in town who was doing all the paperwork for bands that get in from the country, and they never had a problem at the border or anything. So. Oh. Um, and I had the bar, so I was able to sell beer, a can of beer in those days was $2 a can. Right. Probably cost, I don't remember, 50 cents or something. Probably, so yeah. I had a girl from my day job running the till at the front who was trustworthy. used to work at a bank, and she would, she was, people lined up just with money in their hands buying $2 drinks from her. And, uh, <laughs> it was great. Yeah. <laughs> Were you doing this all by yourself, or did you have a partner yeah. at that point? Uh, at that time, I had... Uh, two guys they they were partners they owned Encore Records together in town one was Terry Roberts and one was Terry Brown and they came from Toronto because Toronto was full of secondhand record stores in the early 80s and they moved to town one was from Guelph and they moved here to open up Encore Records because there wasn't anything like that as a, a secondhand record stores uh-huh. in this town and only because I had gone in and bought a lot of records from them that I know them 
Like anytime you open a, a used record store in the old days, the way you open it is you take all of your own personal collection right. and you put it in the record store. And usually your own personal collection is dynamite stuff. You don't really want to sell it, but you need the money. So if you can get one, go into one of those stores when they first open up, there's this great selection of right. records. And he had them all on the wall, and I was like buying every other record. And he liked that I was giving him money, but you could see the pain it was causing him that he was taking them down and yeah. selling them. But uh, they were my partners. And at the end of that show, because there was too many of us partners, we divided the money three ways. Uh, and I forget exactly the amount, but it was like this. And this is 85, so, you know, money was a little different then. Mm. So I gave each partner, like, $200 or something. So we had made, let's say, 600 bucks. Right. And I remember the one partner looking at it, at the money in his hand, like I had just spit in his hand or something. He looked at it like, that's it? And he instantly didn't realize it. But he, with that look in, of disdain in his face, he was no longer my partner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and after that, that was the end of it. Yeah. I just went forward, did shows, and I forgot about either one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so you do a bunch of shows in town, several, and um, then what point do you think, okay, like is it, was the original notion was like, fuck all this renting halls, why don't I just have my own spot where I can bring these well, places? Well, it was still... Um, Again, once you do these things, and, and again, this was a bit of a learning curve, is in that I didn't realize that I was treating the band, and I'm not saying this for me, but I was treating the bands with respect that most guys are promoters, like, get on the stage, fill the room, you know, do a good show, make sure I sell lots of booze, and I don't care what kind of crap music you play. Where I was here out of respect, right. and they saw that I was... Uh, the promoter, but also a huge fan. So I treated all of the musicians with respect. They stayed in nice rooms at the Walper Hotel. I didn't just tell them to sleep in their van or some <laughs> right. crap motel on the highway. And I always gave them some food. And, and because of that, they'd go back to Chicago and say, you got to phone this guy in Canada. And he's going to treat you right. And I, a lot of times I'd give them their money before the show. Oh. They'd never heard of that before. They right. were always chasing the, the promoter down after the show, trying to get paid. So instantly, my phone was ringing off the hook with uh, the next show I did. Uh, Robert Craig gave me 700 bucks. Uh, after that, it was like Magic Slim, Albert Collins, uh, Jimmy Vaughn and the Fabulous Thunderbirds, Coco Taylor. My phone was ringing off the hook. So I went from doing, I'll do maybe a show in the spring, summer, fall, winter to... I could do it all the time. once a week or whatever. And the, yeah. and the audience was really strong locally. Um, yeah, big blues the, down here, right? Yeah. yeah, and it was. I had a strong crowd. Also, again, before uh, emails and texts and all that, I had a, a membership where I'd sell people memberships. This is how I got my liquor license. You had to have a club, so I had to invent a club, like a board of directors with minutes of the meeting and a secretary and a treasurer and the whole bit really to get a, a, a I had a permanent number that I just walk into a liquor store and they give me a liquor license like this oh wow but uh, <laughs> um, different times so <laughs> I um, where was I going with this oh so I I'm off the track a little bit but anyways I was doing more and more shows instead of just uh, four times a year that I, at some point then we did that for, for 85 86. Uh, the beginning of 87, um, I had a couple of guys. One guy that I knew from high school, Scott Urquhart, 
and another guy, Jeff Heaton, who was in, I just knew through the record store and everything, and hang around, they were fun music guys. They were getting more involved, and I said, why don't we start doing this every week? But we couldn't do it at the Legion. We had to find another place to do it where we could actually, for uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, have blues every, every uh, week. And so we found a place at the old Mayfair Hotel, which is now tore down. And in 87, we went upstairs and we opened a bar called the Hoodoo Lounge. And we did a lot of the similar acts. Uh, Buddy Guy played up there, Wolfman Washington, Coco Taylor, all, you know, Jimmy Johnson, Eddie Clearwater, and a lot of Carrie Bell. A lot of the same, whatever blues guys from Chicago were on the circuit at that time, as they were, again, traveling that those, some of these bigger circuits around. Just as an aside to interrupt you for a second, talking about Wolfman Washington, I remember I was in New Orleans with you, and you were like, oh, we're going to go see a show at the end. It was near, uh, I can't remember what bar it was now, somewhere on Frenchman Street, and um, Wolfman Washington was playing. I was all fucked up on absinthe, and uh, <laughs> it was crazy absinthe. We stopped at an absinthe trip on the way, and uh, I walk in. Rookie mistake. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> Believe me, it turned out it was a long night. But uh, um, we we walk in, and I'm like tripping balls off absinthe, and you're just walking up, and they're playing on the stage, and there's and like we're here, we are in New Orleans, and there's like, the guys on the stage like, ah, it's Glenn Smith, like walking out, even though when he was coming, I'm like, <laughs> what is? What is happening right now? They knew a sucker that's going <laughs> to tip big. <laughs> anyway, that just reminded me of that story, but I didn't interrupt you. Go on. Well, funny you bring that up because that, that bar is called DBL. Right. And it's on Frenchman Street, and as of last week, it's for sale. Oh, no. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe great. <laughs> could be could be matching hoodoo here. If you're talking about the hoodoo lounge. Go to New Orleans, buy a bar. Might it be, all looks so easy. Might not be the best time to be buying bars right now. <laughs> well, it, it might be a great time yeah, yeah. because they're all half price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never uh, let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> that's right. So in '87. Yeah. 87, we uh, said, let's try this. And that's when I went with uh, Jeff Heaton and Scott Urquhart and another guy, Brian Burnsill, that was my partner at a wholesale battery business that I had as my day job at the time. And we uh, talked to the owner, and he was uh, humming and hawing about it, but the room was empty. So we did blues in there for 87, 88, and then I think we left because... Uh, uh, Everyone hated, he hated us, and we hated him by then, so. <laughs> How can I make that sound gentle? <laughs> <laughs> he thought, that, and this is where different people come in from a different perspective. He thought people were coming because his club, it was the room, was so cool and, and wonderful. And we thought they were coming because the bands we had were so cool and right. so wonderful. So, you know, he thought he was the boss because he owned the bar and he owned the building. We thought we were running things because I was booking the bands and right. everything else. <laughs> right, right, right. So we finally just, it was impossible. Uh, so we just left. We said, see you later. He told us we'd never become anything. <laughs> Which I gave him the same look as my partner said. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll see about that. And I had found this building. Another guy uh, uh, where Papa Gator was on Queen Street then uh, used to do shows up there. And uh, he'd done a show with a band out of Toronto, and he had bombed terribly. There was like eight people in the audience one night. And I went up to see this band because I'd heard about the room. It used to be an old pool hall, and I wanted to look at the size of the room. 
And I went up that night and I realized this guy's, uh, he's gonna, he took a bath on this one. So on Queen Street, right across, there's some planters at the corner of Charles and Queen. I got up early the next day and I sat on the planters and I sat in front of the building waiting. And sure as heck, some guy pulls up with a van, goes up the stairs, starts bringing out furniture, yeah. <laughs> bringing out sound equipment. And I had found out who owned the building and I phoned them. And I said, I'd like to talk to you about renting the building on Queen Street. And they said, well, we have a tenant there right now. I said, well, you do for about another 10 minutes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, another van pulled up. <laughs> and the landlord said, oh, okay, well, he's gone. What's your name? So yeah. that's how I got in and no popped shit. the gator at the time. Ugh. And that was January of uh, 1989. Uh, we we worked on it for January, February, got our liquor license, cleaned up the room, fixed, built a bar and everything else. And then we opened up March 1st, 1989 with Otis Clay and his band Horns. And wow. It's pretty, uh, pretty wild. So when, okay, I had a couple questions about Pop the Gator. When, so this is, um, like you say, you built a bar, you've cleaned it up, whatever. What You had no experience in the bar industry at this point. Well, no. I mean, except you owned the, the previous Other than I drank a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, so where do you get your knowledge on how to do that kind of stuff from? Well, it goes back to, you know, I was, used to go to the States from the early 70s. Um, and I looked and I realized that the difference between uh, American bars and Canadian bars at the time was so massive. Our liquor laws were so archaic at the time still are well in the <laughs> 70s you couldn't even have a drink on a sunday yeah and in those days there was licensed men's rooms right ladies had to sit on one side only with one male escort <laughs> and it oh, was very gorgeous. odd there was no such thing as a corner bar right. that thing had not come into canada usually they were old hotels the queen's hotel uh-huh. the king eddie the uh, whatever. They sort of became the corner bar because there was nothing they else. Had, they yeah. were old draft houses right. is what they were. They weren't were American corner taverns where if you went to a town like Milwaukee where the, the, the steel plant was down the road or the shipbuilding plant was down the road, guys would work, do a shift on the way home, grab a beer, have a shot of whiskey. Nobody in this country ordered a shot of whiskey and a beer. Right. Um, it was total... A total different, different dynamic. Scene. It was yeah. eight hours from here to Chicago, but it was like worlds away. Mm. So I studied how the culture of drinking and all that was different and how our liquor laws were changing slowly. Even when I was doing shows in 85, you had to provide food, but you had to also show them in sales that you were had certain percentages of food. Mm-hmm. I mean, when Lulu's was open in the mid '80s, he had to—he was selling. You know, he had three thousand people in there drinking. Right. There's no way he could sell enough food for his numbers to work. Right. Out. For he, those who don't know, like Lulu's was an old uh, concert hall, right. uh, nightclub, nightclub, nightclub concert hall. Was uh, it an old Kmart before it was a bar? Yeah, it was not a Kmart. Uh, similar. Wow, yeah. Similar. Uh, and they had a lot of big shows there. I just wanted to refer to anyone who didn't know what Lulu's was, but continue. Um, so anyways, I, I realized the difference between a nightclub is different than a corner bar, which is different than a restaurant, which, you know, and right. you, you have to know what you're opening as you're doing it. 
Okay, yeah, sorry, to, I, I keep interrupting you, but it's, I, there's something interesting you were saying earlier about Lulu's and how they had to have a percentage of their foods. They had to have the same percentage of food sales as like right. a restaurant that served. So if they, if they did, let's say, with 3,000 people drinking, you know, spent $10 each and a night, that's 30 grand they did at the bar. Right. There's no way they could have well, sold $5,000 worth of food. And the liquor board finally looked at this and said, this guy's doing great. He's, he's bringing in tons of revenue for us and tax money through liquor and everything. But it was the government at the time was so old, British, um, uh, colonial, <laughs> just archaic. Said back in the 18th. Yeah, so oh, it's just, like it was just, they, they just, they never ma- did anything to change because change was so... It's hard for them, yeah, and they didn't hard work. Yeah, I mean, this is and this, and I continue to see it in this town all through my life. You know, even when they finally said you can have a drink at a golf course while you're driving around a cart, and locally golf courses here are like, oh, I don't know, it's going to be really difficult, and there'll be problems. And when the when the junior hockey in southern Ontario, the London Knights and, and North Bay and Sault Ste. Marie and Sudbury, all said you can actually come to the arena and have a drink now. Kitchener Rangers were the last to do it because they're like, oh, I don't know. Whether, you know there were fights. fights and yeah. like, this is like, an interesting point, though, because I, so, I, I... This is the most white bread town. Okay, I was going to ask you about that because I still... And I live here and I know it. I still feel like it's still like that a little bit because... they're some degree. Yeah, like it's, it's, they're better. Like, it's better. It's getting better all the time, but like they're, they're a little slow to catch on to new ideas. Like even when we opened this place, um, the backlash for like not disclosing the location to everybody and needing a password like they're like what a true speakeasy is was it was really hard a point to get across to so many people in towns a lot of people got it right away don't get me wrong otherwise right. we, we wouldn't be open well, right. not open but the um but there were so many people who would just resist this kind of change right and right. and and they're almost like violently like angry that we had, right. we had the nerve to have a password or something I right? had a, you know another bar then as we talk later will come up but I had a bar where at the front there's a front window I was looking at it one day it was exactly the right size for a garage door and I thought I'm going to put a garage door in there and open it up and in the summer it'll be nice yeah. let air in hmm. people as they drive by can see in and everything else and the health board was down within hours saying you can't do that that's how they start. You can't do that. Right. And they then you're like, they why? Don't, they don't yeah. come in with, how can we make this work to keep no. us both happy? It's always, this is terrible. You can't do it. And I said, why? I usually say things. That I'm not much of an authority. So I said <laughs> it in probably a different way. I said, you go look at your manual. It's a door. In your manual, it doesn't say anything about how big your doors can be or how small your doors can be. I said, if you go find it, come back and we'll talk. Other than that, yeah. and I never saw them again. Right. But instantly, their first thought was can't do it. wrong, yeah. terrible. Well, that, I can't tell you how many times in <laughs> both the places that I was involved in opening here in town, I heard the, the, the exact three words from inspectors. Can't be done. Can't be done. Can't be done. And then, some, then you do it, and it's like, oh, yeah, I guess that'll work. Like, you know, you just got to kind of plow ahead. And whether it's the way they were trained or the way they were, this town has brought people up, I don't know. It's amazing that I've been able to do what I have in this town with, if I listen to everyone that said no, 
You got one hand tied behind your back at all times, right? Yeah, and yeah. the best way to do it is the old expression of, you know, do it and ask for forgiveness yeah. later. Yeah. There's a lot to that. Yeah, you know, it's I agree. very true. I couldn't agree more. Do it, my unless it is illegal or you know you're breaking yeah. the law or something else. But if it's just a common sense thing. Like a code thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I understand. But uh, <laughs> the, their attitude's so terrible. But... Okay, so, so we're off. We're off track. That's, right. that's what this whole thing's. That's what this is about. Uh, like I, we were talking, we have to make this the Glenn Smith episode a two-parter. That's what it is. Um, okay, so Pop the Gator, you you travel around. You realize how Americans are doing things a little well, bit you, differently. You, you would ask me that I knew nothing about the bar yeah, business. Yeah. Why did I do that? Well, I knew that I was opening a nightclub. Right. We were open uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights only in the evening. We weren't trying to be a restaurant during the day. Right. Uh, I knew that uh, what I was doing, that it was a nightclub. And, and and to interject here again, one thing you always told me uh, that I've always stuck with and, and, and kept for everything I've tried to do is that the biggest thing you need to do if you want to open your own restaurant, bar, business, probably any businesses make sense, but specifically in the service industry, is you got to know what you are, who you are, and stick to that. Right. And not get off. Like, just know who you are and just don't diverge from it. Well, yeah. Can't I mean, be all things to all people. Right. And that's where guys would go say, well, I opened this place and we're going to have great food and we're going we're to be a, a, a corner bar and it'll be a restaurant. And yeah. Then we'll have, uh, you know, bands at night. And he's a bit of everything, but he's a lot of nothing. Exactly. And the boathouse great is a great uh, example of that where the city wanted something. They own the building. go, well, we want music. But, well, we, we like that it's a restaurant, so we want, you know, you to be a restaurant. Well, in the summer, we also want that people going through the park and get ice cream and get a french fries and all of that. But, you know, and mm. so what you're trying to do is please all these people. So, let's so you say end up pleasing nobody. Well, yeah. Yeah, let's say you're doing a Saturday matinee and you have music in there. People are going through the park. They want uh, a Coke and fries for the grandchildren. They want nothing to do with your uh Restaurant, other than to use your washrooms or something, mm. but they just want to buy some food and leave, and that's fine. And you go, well, uh, you can't come in unless you pay a cover, you right. know, because you're trying to be a nightclub. These people are saying, I'm not interested. I just want to spend some money. Right. So, and that's why it's an empty building right now because, you know, you have to go to the the, the city and say, listen, you guys, which are always yeah the most uh, negative getting, people in the world. I talked about renting city. it, and they wanted me to put like a, a half hour. PowerPoint presentation together. I said, kiss my ass. I'm yeah. not doing any present point. You know, I said, I've never even made a business plan up in my yeah, life. I've had to do a couple. Here's my money. Give me the keys. Here's the rent. See you later. I've done a couple of those PowerPoint pitch ideas for like condos that are going up in town. They're pretty, pretty funny because it's like, yeah. it's, it's not the, they don't realize that's not our world. Right? That's no. no. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you do I've, the best you can, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never stiffed a landlord yet. As we talk in the middle of the month, wait till the end of of this month. He he cashed my check first thing in the beginning of this month, so we'll see next month. We'll see where that goes. Okay, so you, uh, you, you've, and you've, you're, you know, you're going to be a nightclub. You've studied, you've gone to the U.S. You've studied how you can maybe bring some of those changes here. A a little different idea of like even how you go about drinking in a bar, right? right? So that's. So that's something, here's the other, you gave me two of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten about the bar industry. Uh, the one that we just mentioned, that you gotta know who you are. The other one is that there's two ways to make money. You either 
come up with a new concept and put it in a place that doesn't have that concept, or you just put a place with that doesn't have a necessarily creative concept, but just a place that serves booze in a place that doesn't have one. Yeah, I mean, an expression I've always used is if you're getting into business, either be first, better, or different. Okay, so you got to catch your way of saying it. Yeah, but if you're first, better, or different, yeah. and you fall into one of those categories, you know, if you see someone else doing something, you say, I'm going to do way better than that person. Yeah. And you do, you'll, you'll leave yeah, them yeah. in your dust and yeah. you'll move on. Um, and that's and that the same thing. So that's why I've, whenever I've opened a business, I wanted to be a powerful situation that people, in the case of Pop the Gator, mm. uh, would walk up the stairs. They were like 12-foot ceilings. You could smoke at a bar in those days. Uh, the first five feet were all smoke, a cloud that hung down. <laughs> Great sight lines. You could get 200 people in there, uh, which is enough to make money, but on a slow night when there's only 100 people in there, it doesn't look like it's empty. Uh, you're open Thursday, Friday, Saturday night of the week. Book it with great talent, good sound system, not too loud, but you can hear it. Hear it thus that you're at the bar ordering a drink, they can hear what you're talking right. about. Dance floor, sight lines. And that room there was hit all the... Whenever I do any of these, I'm in charge of finding the locations because right. that, that is so important. The same in the Kitchener Legion. It was exactly a very similar room. 200 people, dance floor, stage was already there, far enough off the ground, blah, blah, blah. You know, so location. And if a location doesn't have everything, walk away from it. Mm -hmm. If you don't have parking, if you don't have, I always say you need parking and patio for, you know, a corner bar. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, you need certain things, and if you go, well, it's in a terrible part of town, but it's really cheap, that's no reason to do it. Right. You know, get the better location, and it'll pay down the road. Right. Okay. So, so and the other thing, and um, I don't know what the scene was back in the day, but I found now that Kitchener went through, downtown Kitchener in this area here, went down through, like, a really down phase of, like, a pretty sketchy area, and now, with all everything that's coming in now, it's up and coming again, right? All yeah. the new condos, all the tech business. So, it's good to get in on the, at the beginning of that, rather right. than get in after the, all the prices get jacked. So, is that with what went on with Popagator, or was there already a sort of a nucleus of stuff down here? No, no, there was nothing. It right. was, a, it was, a, it was, a, Wasteland. It was wasteland. I lived down at the corner of King and Queen above the American Hotel at the time. I had an apartment. And I remember once there was a big ice storm. And it was massive. Wires were all hanging on the ground and everything. And I walked down the street. I barely made it from the gator to where I lived because it was that much ice. And I remember standing in the in, right in the middle of the intersection looking down King Street. And it looked like... You know, it looked like Dresden in like 1944 when the Allies had bombed the city to, <laughs> to nothing. All the buildings were uh, iced over, and the and the, all the electrical lines were laying down. But it's um, it hardly you'd hardly notice. Um, downtown Kitchener died about 75, 76, and between that time that and today has been, you know, it's been terrible. Yeah, and now it's it's where it's coming around again, and like that's where I was like it took a couple of places like coming down here, Grand Trunk, Grand Surf, Rich Uncle, the B at the Museum, TWH, all these were the the places that came in first down here, which led me to believe that like, it's a good time to get in down here. Now, if like even five years ago, you wouldn't even think about it, right? No, so. and it still has a ways to go. Yeah. 
but now all of the real estate has been bought up. Mm-hmm. There's four or five guys in town that's that right. do this, and they have now, a couple of years ago by now, have bought every property that's worth owning. They're now sitting back. Half of them are empty, possibly. Oh, I've been through almost all of them, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so they're waiting for this rush. This rush that it's coming for different reasons. Rush because Waterloo is full up. Yeah. There's nowhere else and to go. And it's very student-based now, too. So yeah. yeah. And these are more professionals that are moving yeah. into uh, condos. Uh, people my age that have a home saying, why do I do it? Mm. Sell the house, live in a condo, right. live in an apartment, stick all the money in the bank, travel, sit around, wait and die, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, on that note, so, okay, so Pop the Gator does... I had a five-year lease at Pop the Gator. Yeah, and so it did, did pretty well. I went down there a couple times when I was in university. I started, we heard about legendary Pop the Gator, all these great blues shows. My friend and I were big blues fans, um, so we... I remember we had, it was either Albert Collins or Albert King that Albert you had, Collins. and he was supposed to play there and he died. We bought tickets and he like died before we, wow, yeah, yeah, he died before he got to make the show and we were so disappointed and then I think the Rhinos played instead, which is uh, a definite. Well, at least I got the ticket sale money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, did Thanks, you- Albert. And that brings us to a conclusion of part one of our interview with Glenn Smith. Part two coming next week. Hope you enjoyed the show.